Rightio. Uh, well, it's good to be back with you all in MAFRA, and I, I hope that these seminars are going to be of some use. I hope they will be. Um, I, I love this sort of thing. Um, I like thinking about the Bible. Uh, and this is a topic that I've been musing on for a fair while because it actually it really does matter that the bible is true if it's not then we're kidding ourselves it's as simple as that and i don't want to be part of make-believe and uh but you know my own experience is that the bible is not only true it works and 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 there's no other foundation in that that really actually is adequate to how challenging life is and so but in terms of being good stewards of God's good gift of the Bible, um, you know it's important that we know that what the Bible says about itself, but why it makes sense to believe that. And so that's that's what the point of this is. Because if we're going to engage with with any contemporary issue, uh, our foundation is always going to be the Bible. That's the, that's the way I think. If you if you're arguing philosophy or anything else, you you know you're in trouble. My dad used to say to me. Um, in a debate with other people uh, if if they get you on to issues of church history Christian history you know and if that's all you want to argue about all you can do is admit that Christians have made terrible mistakes over the years you know Christians have been anything but perfect uh, if you want to argue philosophy there'll be there'll be loopholes there'll be different things but he says if you if you deal with the scriptures it's God's word. If you talk about the life of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, you're on solid ground. And so when I talk to unbelievers, I want to get them onto the topic of the Bible quickly. And if they'll listen long enough, I want to get them to the resurrection. And they're the two things that I want to talk about today. Because they're, they're the basis of our claims that what we say is true. right? So anyway, uh, I was reading an article during the week to get ready for this. And it says the greatest legacy of Billy Graham is his common use of the, the phrase the bible says has anybody here heard billy graham anybody go to you know if ever you went to hear billy graham it would be the bible says the bible says over and over the bible says so he's letting everybody know this is my authority and so this article which was only published a couple of years ago says that is perhaps his greatest legacy that he relied so wholeheartedly but in our world the answer to that could be so what the Bible says, so what? There's a lot of books. There's a lot of religious books, aren't there? Every different religion has a book of some description. So why do we put a priority on what the Bible says? Um, there are people who would ask you, why would you bother to read such an old book? Have you noticed that people put a very high value on things being current and contemporary? Right? If someone wants to run down a politician's viewpoint... They'll say, oh, he wants to take us back to the 1950s. He's got that white picket fence mentality. Have you ever heard that one? That's what they said about John Howard, right? When people were trying to criticise John Howard, they said, oh, he's taking us back to the 1950s. He's got that white picket fence mentality. Now, behind that thinking is the assumption that progress is always good. And what's gone in the past needs to be left behind because we've progressed. We're more up to date. And so if ever you hear someone saying, oh, they're old-fashioned or that thinking belongs in the past, we're so much more enlightened now, right? But that comes from this idea that progress is inevitably good. Now, I want to question that. Um, not every culture has seen progress as being inevitable 
or even necessarily to be priced. So the Egyptians had a civilization that lasted almost unchanged for about 3,000 years. When Moses got the Israelites to leave Egypt, the pyramids were already old. The pyramids had been there. The Israelites didn't build the pyramids. The pyramids were already old, thousands, about a 1,000 years old by the time the, the Hebrews were there. Right? Now, the Egyptian civilization prized continuity, keeping things just as they were. Right? So the fact that we've grown addicted to change, well, could be good, but not necessarily. Not everybody's seen it that way. Why is it that we... Um, oh, hang on, this thing's not working. Why is it, like, I would gent- if, if you speak to a person about the Bible and they say, oh, it's this old book, then gently ask them without being rude or anything like that, why is it that we keep reminding ourselves that Aboriginals have been in Australia 60,000 years? Because whenever you hear about Aboriginal culture and all that sort of stuff, that's what they want to remind you. They say, oh, they've been here 60,000 years. Well, you could rudely say, so what? Couldn't you? You could. Um, the fact that they've been here such a long what's that to me? But that's often used as an argument. And so if people want to disparage the Bible because it's old, then perhaps you could gently remind them of these sorts of things. Um, this guy's Mark O'Connor. Uh, you can find him on YouTube if you've never heard of him. You will never have heard a better violin player than Mark O'Connor. Started out as a boy wonder in the bluegrass scene and he's gone on to do stuff that is barely imaginable how how good it is but he addressed a a scientific group some years ago and he asked them this question this instrument's design was perfected 400 years ago what other mechanical device has gone unimproved in 400 years so he's talking to scientists and he's saying when Stradivarius produced this violin he did it so well that it's unimprovable so not all progress is good Um, and, and, and some things are just so good that They can just be left. Um, You can't do a better job of making a violin than Stradivarius. Now, just because things are old doesn't mean they're irrelevant. And so we have all sorts of customs and habits and and goings-on that are centuries old, millennia old, and no-one even thinks about it. Now, all of this is just a way of, if if a person will listen to you, just reminding. So does anybody in your world ever say, bless you, when someone sneezes? Do they? Why? Why do, why do people say bless you? It, it comes from an ancient belief that when you sneezed, you were expelling the Holy Spirit from your body and while your mouth was open, a demon might jump down your throat. And so if you were quick to pronounce a blessing on someone, then you would cover the possibility. Right? That's why we say bless you when people sneeze. What about crossing your fingers? Um, does anybody still do that or is that only in Druin? <laughs> I mean, people, people do that. I've seen people do this and, and cross, cross their arms and cross their legs as though the more crosses we can make, the more luck I'll have. It's, it's superstition. But it comes from the medieval era where when to make the sign of the cross means you're protecting yourself from, you know. But people still do this sort of stuff. So the, these ancient habits have continued, right? Um, why do we call this 2021? If, you, if you're wanting to defend the faith, sometimes the best thing to do is to ask some simple questions. What year is this? 2021. Everybody agrees. Well, 2021 from what? Now, I could tell you why it's 2021. Um, 
you know, why they decided in the 6th century to, to make Jesus' birth the, the beginning point of our, our history. But um, the fact is that we have a calendar that reminds us every day that Jesus matters. Because at one point it was decided that we would make that our, the foundation of our history. So the Bible, yes, it's an ancient book, but it's a book that makes extraordinary claims for itself and so the question is, what do Christians believe about the Bible? What does the Bible say about itself? And then, can we defend that? Right, the Bible's got 66 books. We know that, don't we? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. We believe, this is Christian belief, that they're God's revelation of himself. Right? They're not people's opinions about God. This is what God wants people to know about him. It's a revelation. Uh, the Bible is the word of God because it's authorship fundamentally behind the human authors stands god the god of the universe he put into people's minds the things that he wanted to write now let's stop and think a moment about god this is an extraordinary thing to say when i read the bible i'm reading god's word is that what we believe right now think about this if god is who the bible says he is that is he created the universe we agree with that god created most people are moderately comfortable with the idea that god can make things right most people still believe in god did you know that most people not everybody but most people um i've had people who've told me i don't actually believe in god but i believe there's something out there so i just say to that well i actually think it's someone right but let's for the sake of the argument believe that god created the world if he did all that do you think he's capable of transmitting ideas to people is that too much of a stretch is it too much of a stretch that the god who created everything could transmit ideas to people in such a way that they wrote them down accurately i don't think that's too hard to imagine and so when i what the bible teaches about it itself is that god is the ultimate author and so when we read the scriptures we're actually seeing what god says so what scripture says god says uh, and so the obedient way to read the bible is to regard it as coming from god and so if you disagree with the bible you're disagreeing with god um, and so that for that reason the bible is authority what we authority for what christians believe and how they should behave when we call them the scriptures that's um, just from a latin word that means writing so it's the writings from God and about God. Um, so we teach, the Bible teaches itself that the Bible is inspired or God breathed. So 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, I haven't written all of these verses here. I'm assuming you know bits of them, but they're all on the sheet if you want to check them out later. But 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, the Apostle Paul writes that all scripture is God breathed. That's where we get the word inspiration. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, when Paul wrote that, he meant what we call the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't come into being yet. So Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so God created everything through a word and the, the, the one who created through a word gives us words which are from him as well. And so uh, the same way that God created the universe, he's, he's given us his his powerful word uh, when moses received the ten commandments we read in exodus 32 verse 16 the tablets were the work of god and the writing was the writing of god engraved on the tablets so it was the finger of god that wrote the law on those those stone tablets 
Uh, in Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So Moses wrote it down under God's instruction and it was taken and then taught to others as though it was God's word itself, right? That's, that's what the Bible teaches us. Um, so God spoke and Moses wrote God's words down. Uh, in Jeremiah, uh, most of the Old Testament prophets have a commissioning statement. You can read in the early part of their writings the things that God said to them, this is why I'm getting you to do what I'm going to get you to do. And good old Jeremiah, God says, no one's going to listen to you. That would be a joy, wouldn't it? You know, Steve, I'm sending you to Mafra, but they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> oh, ripper, you know. Uh, sign me up. That's what Jeremiah had to put up with, and he did it. But Jeremiah, God, God, it's a fantastic book, the book of Jeremiah. Um, but God says to him as he commissions him, to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And the Lord said to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. Now, the thing is, that's either true or it's not. It's just, it's one or the other. And so if you accept that, then you need to say, right, what the scriptures teach, I'm going to believe. If someone rejects that, well, hopefully they've thought it through. But it's one or the other. But I've come to the point where I accept this. Um, and, and I think for good reasons. So Jeremiah 2 verse 2, thus says the Lord. Now that's the characteristic phrase of the prophets and so it, it turns up 150 times in jeremiah and 415 times throughout the whole old testament but most of them are in jeremiah it's the characteristic phrase of the prophets thus says the lord so when jeremiah says it he's saying it as god's spokesman uh, and so jeremiah 6 verses 16 to 19 great words thus says the lord stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls but they said we will not walk in it that's the joy of being a prophet god god says go to them and say this is the way that works this is the way that will bring rest for your soul and the people say no don't want it what a what a treat that would have been to be a prophet to those people but jeremiah had to go on and say i set watchmen over you saying pay attention to the sound of the trumpet but they said we will not pay attention Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they rejected it. Now the thing about God's word is to reject the prophet, to reject the scriptures, is rejecting God. So the God of the universe has transmitted his thoughts perfectly to human agents who wrote them down, And when we hear them, when we read them, we need to regard them as coming from God. And if we don't, we're not fighting Jeremiah or Isaiah or whoever's preaching to you. Our fight is with God. And he will judge rejection of his word. So it's actually a serious thing to to reject God's word. Jesus regarded scripture as authority. If you know, when he was in the wilderness, over and over, he said to the devil as he tempted him, it is written. And so he quoted three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, 6 and chapter 6. Um, and so to, to deal with the devil's temptations, which were real, because Jesus was a human, he answered him with the word of God. It is written. The Apostle Paul regarded scripture as authoritative. So in Romans 15 he says, 
Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So whatever written was in, in former days. So in other words, all that Old Testament, it's still current, still for us, needs to be taken seriously uh, and it will inspire endurance and hope as you read it properly. Um, now, as far as the Bible being an inspired document, Paul claims that he wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of Scripture. So we've seen that the Old Testament prophets wrote believing that they were inspired by God and the people who obeyed them regarded them that way as well. Paul also claimed inspiration for his writing. So 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now, what we have received... We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Can you see what Paul's saying? I'm not making this up. He's saying, I'm getting it from God. Now, I know preachers who say that. I don't need to read the word. I'm getting it from God. Right? Okay. But Paul says, test everything. John says, test the spirits to see if they're from God. I think that God raised up specially commissioned apostles to be agents of his word. The apostles are in the New Testament what the prophets were in the Old. And now that we have scripture written, that becomes our authority. Uh, And so if I ever come to you and say, the Lord told me, feel free to question it. Because his word will never contradict itself. But Paul actually says that in Galatians. He says, if we or an angel from heaven should come with any other gospel, what comes next? Let him be forever cursed. So Paul says, if I come to you with a message other than the one that I brought when I came the first time, then don't listen. Right? Um, Paul claims to have been especially the instrument of God to, to have his... Um, his words written down others acknowledged it so in first thessalonians we also thank god constantly for this that when you received the word of god which you've heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of god which is at work in you believers now the people that first received what we now call the new testament were conscious that the people writing it were apostles who'd been commissioned by jesus and the earliest christian leaders who wrote their own thoughts down were conscious that their writings were not inspired in that way. So if you were to read some of the earliest Christian writings that haven't made it into the Bible, the writers of those things admit that they're not inspired like Paul was. Their writings are useful and they've often got great stuff in them, but they they admit that they know that Paul's writing is different from theirs. So there's a guy called Clement who wrote a letter to the same people in Corinth in about AD 90, So he was writing at a time when the New Testament hadn't been finished yet because probably John hadn't written Revelation by the time Clement wrote to the Corinthians. And yet Clement makes it quite plain that what he's writing is not scripture. He's interpreting scripture and he's hoping, you know, do you see what I'm saying? So Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Others acknowledged it, including Peter. So we'll get to that in a moment. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, Peter says, this is how the Bible works, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We got a question? Right. Yep. 
Harry's got... Uh, we've got to get the microphone. Yep. You speak of the Apostles' writing inspired scripture. What about Mark and Luke? Yeah, right. That's a very good question. And I'll, I'll answer it now, but we'll get to that in a little bit too. The reason why... I want to talk later on about why we've got 27 books in the New Testament and not 80. Uh, because that's a big issue. And it, it really came to light when Dan Brown wrote his book, The Da Vinci Code. We're going to talk about that in a little while because that's sort of filtered through to the way people think. So why were Mark and Luke included in the Bible? Mark, we believe, wrote what Peter told him to write. So he was like Peter's scribe. And so he recorded Peter's recollections of the Lord Jesus. Luke was a travelling companion of Paul. And he claims in the very beginning of his, of his gospel that he went to eyewitnesses. And so the earliest Christians received as scripture what they knew came from the hand of an apostle or came from someone very closely associated to an apostle. So Mark and Luke weren't apostles. But Mark took down what Peter wrote and he hung around with Paul. And Luke was a travelling companion of Paul and so their work was received by the earliest Christians as coming with the authority and with the blessing of a commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's why. We'll we'll get back to that, right? It's a good question. Um, Paul, according to Peter... Now, Peter would know a thing or two, wouldn't he? He was one of Jesus' closest of the 12 he was the one who when he confessed christ jesus said to him you are peter and on this rock i will build my church so you'd have to say yeah peter would know a thing or two he was taught by jesus he says about the apostle paul's writings to their scripture now peter was a jew and it would be blasphemy to say of any writing that wasn't inspired by god that it was scripture and yet he said paul wrote scripture look at this second peter three Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter says, you need to listen to Paul, because he's writing scripture. Now this is really interesting, because we know about when Peter wrote these words, and by then, already... Paul's letters were travelling around as a collection. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but the fact is that all of these things were written down by hand and copied and copied and copied, and by the time that Peter was writing to the people he was writing to, Paul's letters were known beyond the congregations that he'd sent them to because they'd been copied and copied and then collected. And Peter is prepared to say, as the commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus, what Paul says is scripture which means it has the same authority as anything that Jeremiah said or Moses or whoever. That's what that means. Now, Dan Brown, author of the Da Vinci Code, uh, what's his job? What's what's Dan Brown exist to do? Crude answer, make money. So he'll do whatever it takes and whatever a publisher will, will put out, right? Is it his job to tell the truth? No, he just wants to make money. Right? Now, he's a good enough writer that he can sell lots and lots of books and make himself fabulously wealthy. Uh, 
But in his book, The Da Vinci Code, in the, in the first, you know, the, the, the preface section, he's got this little thing, all the descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. So that seems to set this book apart from just a normal work of fiction. He's saying all the stuff in here about the Mona Lisa and about this church in Rome and about all the secret religious goings on. Has anybody read The Da Vinci Code? Seen the movie? Yeah, Yeah, right. Um, It it was really a hot topic. I actually read it once. I'd never bothered with the movie. I thought I'd read the book and that was enough. Um, But we did a, a seri- we did a, a night on the Da Vinci Code at Community Church, and um, when I was pastoring there, and uh, and we wrote it up in the newspaper, and I actually got an interview with the ABC on the strength of it. Uh, so the, the guy from ABC Sale rang me and said, "Oh, what you know, what are you doing?" And he said, "Why are you so concerned about it?" And I said, "Well, this little statement at the beginning of the book makes it sound like that the book itself is telling us we can trust it. Can you see that?" So when someone says, you know, I'm writing this... But then the claims that Dan Brown makes in the book are furfies. But why should that bother anybody? He's only doing it to make money, right? But this is some of the things that he says in the book. The Bible is a product of man. It evolved over time. There were 80 Gospels that were considered that were whittled down to four. And the very strong suggestion is that the other 76 said stuff that the early Christians thought, oh, that's a bit dodgy, we can't include that. And so they left out the stuff that was inconvenient, they got it down to four. But there was really 80, right? We think, wow, I didn't know I'd been hoodwinked all these years. But the, the, the message here, and it's not just in Dan Brown, you find it in other places as well. What they're saying is when you read the Bible, you're reading this sanitised version because they didn't trust you with the gutsy stuff. And do you want to know really what happened with Jesus, how he gave Mary Magdalene a kiss and got married to her? Then you need to read the other ones. You haven't been told that because blokes like Steve want to keep you in the dark, right? That's the suggestion. Anyway, he goes on and he says that the Council of Nicaea was called by Emperor Constantine to upgrade Jesus' status to divine. Up until then, they just thought Galilean carpenter, you know, a bit of a nobody. Uh, but the Council of of um, Nicaea was called to boost his status it was decided by a close vote so there was just enough votes in favour of yes Jesus is God to the people no he's just a carpenter that it got over the line according to the book Uh, he says that the suppressed gospels the 76 that we don't have were actually turned up in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi documents that were found in Egypt in 1945 that's what he says and this is in the book that says all the descriptions are accurate now that's just nonsense but most people don't read christian history they do when they go to the airport pick up a novel like that to read on the plane but what i would say is you know that there's a genre of thrillers that are about medical procedures did you know that so you can read books about doctors and nurses it's like if you were told you had cancer and you go and read a book that you picked up at a newsagent, it's a medical drama. Oh, I don't care what the doctor says, I read it in this book. Right? Well, if you want to get your knowledge of the Bible from the writer of an airport thriller, 
then don't expect him to teach you the truth because it's not his job. His job is to make money. And he'll make it out of whatever sucker he can get to read his book. I think Dan Brown knew that he was telling st- stories here, but it didn't bother him. But the fact is that he's, he's wrong at so many points of history that if you bothered to check it out, and I'm going to show you some of them, if you bothered to check it out, you'd realise. Now, Richard Dawkins is another one who's come in with this. Have you heard of Richard Dawkins? I'm going to talk about him again in a couple of weeks. But he's a biologist. But he's an atheist. Actually, he describes himself as an agnostic because he says that there's seven points along the scale of belief to unbelief. So you can absolutely believe, you can absolutely disbelieve, and there's varying points along the way, right? He says, yes, I have to accept that you can't disprove God. He says, these people at point one, they can't prove him, but I can't disprove him. So he says, I'm a 6.9. So he says, all right, technically I'm an agnostic. And he's admitted that, right? But he says this in his book, The God Delusion. He's talking, because in his book, The God Delusion, he says, the God I want to disprove most is the God of Christianity because it's the one I know best. Right? He says, there's lots of other gods. We've, you know, don't worry about them. We're going to disprove the God of Christianity. Okay, pal, give us your best shot on the Bible. Because the Bible's the, the book that, you know, there's two things I want to know from Richard Dawkins before I'm with him. Tell me about the resurrection. Tell me about the Bible. Right? He dismissed the resurrection in a sentence. You know, take us seriously, pal, if you're going to try to disprove us. One sentence, and that's all it got. If he could have done serious work on the dis- on the resurrection, we could all go home and watch the football, right? But he he couldn't do it. He, he didn't do it because he couldn't do it. But this is what he says about the Bible: the Gospels were written long after the death of Jesus. All were then copied and recopied through many different Chinese whispers generations. Have you heard that before? What that means is the book that we read now is so different from what was originally written that why would you listen to it at all that's what people will say because they read dan brown and they might have read richard dawkins and i'll say yeah but when you say the bible says we don't know what the bible says because it was written so long ago and it's changed over the years now that's a big argument isn't it if if they're right if he's right that's a serious argument isn't he well then how do we know that what we've got hasn't changed well i want to show you that you can be confident that it hasn't changed so when were the new testament documents written jesus died about ad 30 um the earliest book was galatians it was written about ad 48 so in other words 18 years after the event uh, the earliest gospel was mark probably there's still a bit of dispute and debate about that some people think matthew uh, but mark was written probably between 48 and 55 uh, ad First uh, Corinthians, which is the first written description of the resurrection, uh, was written in AD 55. And then Luke uh, was written in the late 60s, Matthew later, 85 to 90. Uh, and John was written probably between 90 and 100, right? So John was the only apostle not to die an unnatural death. Um, the others were all martyred. John, we believe, died as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Now, you might look at those dates and say, yeah, that's still a long way from when Jesus lived. It, it, 18 years is a long time, isn't it? Right? How, how clear are your recollections of things that happened 18 years ago? Beck? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a much bigger chunk of your life than it is mine, right? Um, 
There are some things that happened to me 18 years ago that I can remember perfectly. And you'd be the same, I'm pretty sure. Um, Here's an interesting thing, though. Bishop John Robinson wrote a book in 1976 called Redating the New Testament. Now, John Robinson is a classical liberal. He does not believe in miracles. He doesn't believe in the the, the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? So he's not an evangelical. And yet he wrote this book... um, that some really solid evangelicals say needs to be taken seriously. And this is what he said. He said, I thought I would see how far one could get with the hypothesis that the whole of the New Testament was written before before AD 70. In other words, within 40 years of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's his conclusion, that John wasn't written in the last decade of the first century he says no john must have been written before ad 70 and the reason he comes to that he says one of the oddest facts about the new testament is that what on any showing would appear to be the single most dateable and climactic event of the period the fall of jerusalem in ad 70 and with it the collapse of institutional judaism based on the temple is never once mentioned as a past fact now wouldn't you think the building that was central to the hopes and aspirations of the Jewish people, the temple, it was destroyed. We know it was destroyed by the Romans. They, that's that's from the Arch of... Anybody been to Rome? Did you, did you see the Arch of Titus? You can, you can still walk through it, or near it, but it's got a, a, a relief carving of the Roman soldiers coming out of the temple with the seven-branched candlestick and the trumpets. So they celebrated the destruction of Jerusalem with this memorial victory arch. You can still see it in Rome today. So we know that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And all of the earliest writers of the Bible were Jews. Wouldn't you think that the building that they held as most central to their faith, ruined by the Romans, wouldn't you think that one or two of them would have said something about it? Well, according to J.A.T. Robinson, that is conclusive proof that the New Testament documents must have been written before 70. Now, other scholars say, well, good thought, but probably not, right? Um, they explain it other ways, but it at least bears thinking about. Anyway, Irenaeus was one of those early Christian pioneer writers that I spoke about earlier, and he was taking on a man called uh, Marcion. Marcion was a powerful and persuasive preacher who attracted lots and lots of followers to a new version of Christianity. He said that the Bible, what we would call the Bible, has two gods. There's the nasty, mean, vengeful God of the Old Testament and the God of grace and love of the New Testament. And he said the Gospels are bad news because they're too Jewish, except for Luke because he was a Greek. So we can read Luke. And he was a mate of Paul's. So Marcion said the only documents that we would now call the New Testament that you should read are 11 of Paul's letters and the Gospel of Luke and forget the rest. He says, not worth reading. And forget the Old Testament because that's a nasty, vengeful God. Ignore him. Irenaeus wrote this book against heresies because he wanted to say no. What the apostles taught... And what the apostles recorded is what we should regard as the true version of the Christian faith. Marcion wrote hymns, he set up churches, his movement grew and expanded. These days most people haven't heard of him. But for a while he was the hottest ticket in town. And he had some considerable influence. So Irenaeus, one of these earliest Christian thinkers, 
He wrote this book against heresies and from it we learn how the Bible came together. So this is in answer to your question, Harry. So this is what he says. We have learned from none others, and I've got this on the sheet so you can take it home. We've learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. For after our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them. They were filled with his gifts and had perfect knowledge. That's what Jesus said would happen. Irenaeus said it did. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will remind you of the things that I've taught you. That's what Jesus promised. right? So Irenaeus says, that's happened. And so he goes on. He says, Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him afterwards. John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had learned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So Irenaeus is telling it, these are the guys that wrote the books that we now regard as scripture. And he's giving you the authority. That's at a very early stage of the Bible's history. Irenaeus says, these are the ones, these are the people you should listen to, right? So when were the New Testament documents written? Isn't 20 years a long time, 20 plus years? Well, back in those days, most people couldn't read and most people couldn't write. What that meant was they had to remember things. How many people have got good memories? You can all remember some things. I, mean, I reckon some of you people who cook can remember how to put together a pretty tasty dish without looking at the recipe. Can't you? I know, you know. I, I cooked the other night at home and Jenny said, what are you looking at the recipe? I said, it's not that easy for me, right? I need the recipe, right? She just, you know. There used to be a time when people remembered a lot of telephone numbers. We don't need to anymore because we've got... Our memories are deserting us the less we need to use them. Back in those days when people didn't read, couldn't write and didn't have books, they had to remember a lot more. Jesus, we believe, taught in a way that was memorable. And so the people committed a lot of these things to memory. Back in those days, oral testimony, that is memory and spoken, had more authority than written testimony in a court. Because people realised that you could remember a lot of stuff. Um, only 10 to 15% of 10 to 15 could read or write, so memorisation was common. But even then, there were written sources about Jesus. Now, I want to tell you a story. Back in 1995, I remember reading an article. It was the uh, the 80th anniversary of the Gallipoli landing, right? The, the landing at Anzac Cove. And the Australian newspaper published a number of stories of people that were there. Right, so these were all very old men, well into their 90s. And they, they told the journalists this is what happened on the day of the landing. And the reason that they did that was because they realised this generation was dying and we need to record these recollections before they're lost. Would you have the courage to go to that man and say, no, you're wrong? I think your recollection is mistaken. Would you do that? Because those events so powerfully imprinted themselves on these people's minds that they will never forget them. Now I had my own experience of that. I, I went to the Solomon Islands in 1979 and did a teaching placement there. 
And uh, I kept a diary every day because I realised I'm in a brand new culture. I want to remember this. So every day I would, I would write a diary, except for about the last three or four days because things were just so hectic I didn't have time. And I was just moving around from place to place and, and I was seeing different people. But some extraordinary things happened in those four days. Fifteen years later, I had a wet Saturday afternoon in the school holidays and I thought, I'm going to finish my diary. So I sat down and I wrote about eight pages on things that happened 15 years previous. They were so firmly... Imp- I could tell you about them now. Um, they were so firmly implanted in my brain. Now, the things that happened with Jesus, his teaching imprinted themselves on people's minds and they were living in a culture that prized the capacity to memorise. So it's not too long to say, oh, gee, it took Paul a long time to write to the Galatians. There were documents in circulation. Now, some relevant comparisons at this point. Muhammad couldn't write. So he received revelations from the angel Gabriel, which are the foundation of Islam. He didn't write them down. He told them to other people who wrote them down and all sorts of different things. But they weren't collected together until 760 AD, which is 125 years later on. Try telling a Muslim they're not reading the writings of Muhammad. Right? So when people say, oh, there's such a big gap between the Bible when it happened and and when it was written down, ask them, do you care about some of these other ones? What about Buddha? Um, He lived in uh, the 4th and 5th century BC and yet his writings weren't taken down until the 1st century BC, 350 years gap. No Buddhist disregards them. So Dawkins alleges that we are reading a book which is based on Chinese whispers where, you know, the, the party game Chinese whispers where one person starts something off and it gets passed down the line and by the end it's almost unrecognisable. That's what Dawkins says, that's what Dan Brown says is the Bible that we've got. Well, without the original documents, because we don't have the originals, we don't have the bit of parchment that Paul or Luke or Mark or John wrote on, we don't have them. Everybody knows that. Uh, without them, how do we know that they haven't been changed? Well, have a look at this. This is a chart that compares when the Bible things happened, when the Bible was written down, and the copies that we have available to us to, to compare and to check and all those sorts of things. And it does that by comparing it to other ancient documents, right? Now, I'll just give you two examples. So if we think of a timeline that goes from 200 BC to 1000 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, do you believe in Julius Caesar? Have you ever, ever come across Julius Caesar? Right? Shakespeare wrote a play about him. There is no serious historian who doesn't believe in the existence and the effect of Julius Caesar, the, um, the emperor of Rome, the Roman Republic. Right? So let's, let's assume with every other reputable historian that Julius Caesar was a man who lived and breathed and did a lot of stuff. Right? Let's assume that, okay? Julius Caesar operated in the first century BC, so he was before the time of Christ. Uh, he was succeeded by Augustus Caesar, who was the emperor at the time of the, uh, the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. If you believe in Julius Caesar, you do so on the basis of testimony that was written down 950 years, or the earliest copy of the records of Caesar's life are 950 years after he lived. And there's only 10 copies of that antiquity. 
And yet no one doubts that Caesar really lived and invaded England, invaded Gaul and was the the champion of the Roman Empire as it then was, right? Ten copies that you can compare and the earliest of those is 950 years after it was written down. Now, they didn't have computers, they didn't have printing presses. They had people writing things out by hand over and over and over again. But of all of those copies of what was written down that tell us about Caesar, 10 copies have survived uh, and the earliest of those is 950 years later. What about the Bible? Right, we know when the New Testament events happened. AD 30 was when Jesus died. We've already seen when the earliest New Testament documents, documents were produced. Right, the earliest fragment of a New Testament document comes from the early 2nd century, about somewhere between AD 100 and AD 150. It's a tiny little piece of parchment written on both sides that has a fragment of John's Gospel. You can go to the Rylands Museum in the University of Manchester and you can see it. It's on display, right? And there's no doubt that this was John's Gospel and it comes to us from early in the 2nd century. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting for all sorts of reasons that we haven't got time to go into now, but that's, that's an early piece of evidence of the uh, transmission of the Bible. Another one is the Chester Beatty Papyrus, which came from early in the 3rd century. That's the 200s. Very early in there, we've got a much bigger chunk of the New Testament, but we only have to go into the early 4th century, around about AD 300, before we get to an entire New Testament. And that's what's called Codex Vaticanus. It's held in the Museum of the Vatican in Rome. Uh, And so a couple of hundred years after it was written, we have an entire New Testament, written by hand, but transmitted. And so you can look at that and say, hmm, how much like the documents that we now read is that? And we go, it's very like the documents we read now. In fact, it's almost identical. Now... In contrast to the life of Caesar where there's 10 copies and none of them is closer than 950 years, we have ancient documents in Greek and in Latin. We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts. We have 8,000 Latin manuscripts that you can compare. So when people say, oh, yeah, it was Chinese whispers and it's changed so it's unrecognisable, they simply don't know what they're talking about. Dawkins in his book has gone with Wikipedia level research not even that good the Bible is not based on Chinese whispers, it's based on the transmission of people that cared so much about what they wrote that they were fastidious in making sure that what they wrote was what they just read and they had very strict control mechanisms to make sure that when they copied it down it was just like what they'd read right Now, that's really important. Now, here's something, and we've got to be honest about this, and Christians need to be honest. Those ancient documents don't agree at every point. There are differences in some of them. There are misspellings or words that are joined together because the Greeks didn't always separate their words and they didn't use capital letters. Uh, So they didn't have commas and question marks and things like that. So there's some differences. Yep, we've got to accept that. But we know that the Bible was transmitted in a way and there's so many copies that we can compare that we can now have the utmost confidence that what we read is in English the equivalent of what was written all those years ago in Greek. And so I want to show you that. Right, so this is how the Bible works. 
Uh, John, let's pick on John. He was writing from Ephesus when he wrote his gospel. Um, John wrote it down. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a photocopier, so they had to copy it by hand. But the people who read John's gospel thought, this is worth having. We need to copy this, and there'll be others who want to read it as well. And so they copied it. And then it got copied, and then it got copied, and it got copied, and it got copied, and it spread all the way around. Wherever there were Christians, there were copies of John. That's why that... um, the original John Ryland's fragment is so interesting because it was from Egypt. And that means that by the early 2nd century, the gospel had taken root in Egypt. So it shows us how quickly the, 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 the New Testament community was spreading. Righto, so there's copies and copies and copies and copies and they're all distributed throughout the Mediterranean region. Scholars who know about these things, and I'm not one of them, I'm just passing on what I've read, but scholars who know about these things say that there's four main textual families. There's the Western, there's the Byzantine, the area around Constantinople. There's the Caesarean, so that's the sort of the Palestinian family. And then there's the Alexandrian from the region in Egypt around... These are all places where there were significant Christian communities. And so the scholars can look at a document and they can say, well, that, by the way it's been written and the materials that it's been written on, they can tell by the handwriting where it's come from. They can also tell from the composition of the ink, the chemistry of the ink. They can tell from the pollen that somehow embedded itself in the material they wrote on where it comes from. And they can also tell how old they are. And so the scholars look at it and they say, well, we've got all these different documents and they come from different places in the empire, in the the Roman Empire, and we can tell that they come from that place or that place or wherever, and then they look at them. So this is how it works. The autograph or the original document was copied and it was copied and it was copied and it was copied. We know that, right? But it was copied not just in one location but multiple locations. And so these days, because there's over 5,000 ancient Greek documents, if a scholar wants to know what did the original text actually say, they compare one with another. And they compare it within the Alexandrian family and then they compare it across to all the other textual families as well and when they see that these documents agree on just about everything they can work out well what we're reading is pretty close to the original in fact it's extraordinarily close to the original i'll get to that in a moment um another comparison do you you know homer the the great greek poet not the character in the simpsons but um homer was a blind poet who who wrote down the Greek... He, he actually couldn't write. He used to sing the Greek myths, but other people wrote them down. So what we know about the Greek myths is largely as a result of Homer uh, and his two most famous works are the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, the Iliad is one of the best-preserved literary works of the ancient world. Uh, there are 643 manuscripts of it and there are 764 disputed lines. So, in other words, we're not sure that this is what Homer wrote. And yet no, no scholar thinks to question that it's, it's a great work that's worth reading. There are 40 disputed lines in the New Testament. So when you've got this great wealth of manuscript evidence, 5,000 different manuscripts, the scholars can say, this one from Alexandria, how does it compare with that one from Caesarea? And if there were huge discrepancies, they'd be able to find them. The other thing was there was all these different Christian sects and each of them wanted to prove their version was right and so they were all looking over each other's shoulders and saying, you can't change that. You can't change it to suit yourself because there's other people watching on saying, no, that's not what was written. 
There are only 40 disputed... Now, that might sound like a lot. And you think, hang on, what's going on here? 40 disputed lines. There's no two manuscripts agree. But the area of disagreement is so tiny that not one single vital doctrine of the Bible is threatened by it. There might be a word that's got an S on the end of it. And that's the difference between one text and another. You see what I'm saying? The discrepancies between the manuscripts are so tiny that they're not worth arguing about because they don't threaten any major doctrine. They don't threaten the Trinity. They don't threaten the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection. None of those things is disputed. They're all crystal clear and they agree. And we've got 5,000 documents that we can, we can check them against. William Shakespeare's place, he wrote 37. Um, there are no surviving origins, originals and there are numerous, numerous lines. So if you read a Shakespeare play at school or for your own amusement, um, we, we can't be that sure that it was original because we don't have the originals. What we do have is copies that the actors wrote down themselves so they could perform their part in the play. Uh, but no one doubts Shakespeare. Everybody's quite happy to read him. All of the New Testament with the exception of 11 minor verses, can be reconstructed. If we scrapped every one of those 5,000 documents, those 5,000 ancient manuscripts, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament, with, except for 11 verses, just from the writings of the earliest Christians. So people like Irenaeus, people like Polycarp, people like um, Ignatius of Antioch, people like Clement who wrote to the Corinthians. All of those earliest Christians quoted so prolifically from the new testament we could put the whole thing together again even if we lost all of the original documents right am i overloading you i hope not but if you forget everything i've said today just take the notes home but remember this what we've got when we read the bible in english today is unarguably for anybody who wants to do the work it's unarguable that it's the best English translation of what was originally written. And if they say to you, Chinese whispers, too long, they're not paying attention. Now, if you're going to be in a debate with someone, and if they're, if, if they're prepared to sit and listen, the best thing to do is ask questions. Well, what actually, why do you say it's Chinese whispers? What makes you say that? Um, you know, First Peter chapter 3 says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. So if you get in a discussion with a person and, and you say, well, the Bible says, and they say, ah, oh, the Bible's a silly old book, what makes you say that? You say gently and respectfully. Right? You won't win anyone to the faith by being belligerent and horrible. You won't. Right? Gentleness and respect has won some. But if someone comes to me with that sort of stuff, I say, well, what do you actually know about the Bible? What makes you say it's Chinese whispers? Where do you get that from? Chances are they got it from Dan Brown. And he only exists to make money. He's not interested in the truth. Anyway, F.F. Bruce was very interested in the truth. Great uh, British Bible scholar. He says, looking at all the manuscript evidence, the evidence for the New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Remember that we believe in Julius Caesar on the basis of 10 documents that were 950 years after they were originally written. No one doubts Caesar. 
When it comes to the New Testament, there's so much evidence, it's almost embarrassing. Now, the only people who dispute this, who dispute that the Bible is what it was originally written to be, you know, the only people who dispute it are liberal Christians and people who just haven't bothered to do the homework. Even unbelieving historians have to say, yeah, the Bible is very, very accurately transmitted. That's just the facts. Um, Sir Frederick Kenyon was the director of the British Museum. He was the president of the British Academy. As long ago as the 1940s, he was able to say this. The interval between the dates of the original compositions and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be negligible. And the last foundation that for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Richard Dawkins should have read some Kenyon before he wrote his book. Because Dawkins... Well, most people don't care about this sort of stuff. They're happy to go with Dawkins because he tells them what they want to hear. But he's not an expert. He's a biologist, not a historian. Anyway, now, another question. Why, why did the books we've got end up in the Bible? There's 27 books in the New Testament. Whose decision was it? Was it Emperor Constantine? Did he say, you've got to have Matthew, Mark and Luke and John? Emperor Constantine had nothing to do with it. That, that is a complete fabrication from Dan Brown. He had nothing to do with it. The earliest attempts to decide which books should go in the New Testament, which should be regarded as scripture, Irenaeus is the earliest writer to do that. And he did it because Marcion, that heretic, said only Luke and only 11 of Paul's books should be in there. Anything by Matthew, Mark, John, forget them. Um, James, Peter, forget them. Forget it, really. You know. um, Irenaeus had to correct the record and say, no, these are the books that do belong. And so Irenaeus in his writings said he, he acknowledged all of the books that we would now call the New Testament, except for Hebrews, Second Peter, and First John. He wasn't sure about them. Why would he have been unsure about Hebrews, do we think? No one knows who wrote it. Now, the earliest English translations say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Most people would now say that's, that's unlikely. Right? There's all sorts of reasons for believing that. The author of the book of Hebrews doesn't identify himself. Uh, and so for a long time people weren't quite sure how it fitted so the test is does it come from the hand of an apostle and people weren't sure eventually they said yeah look it does have the ring of the sort of things that the apostles taught so it took a little while to be accepted there were some problems with second peter because the language is so different from the letter of first peter and they said well gee you know the sort of words that they use are they the same person uh, third john it was another one that he wasn't sure about. The Muratorian canon from... Do you know what canon means, by the way? You know, we talk about the canon of scripture. It's just one of these technical words. It comes from a word which means the measuring stick. And so these are the ones that you can trust. These are the ones you can rely on. And so we say the canon of scripture is the books that actually meet the criteria for inclusion in the scriptures. The Muratorian canon acknowledged everything but Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. Um, Eusebius was a man who wrote an early Christian history and writing in the, um, the early 4th century, he acknowledged the whole New Testament except for James. He wasn't sure. He, he said it's disputed whether James was 
a, a canonical book. Second Peter was disputed, Second John and also Third John. But by the time of Athanasius uh, in AD 367, he accepted them all. And by the time of the, uh, the Council of Carthage, they were all acknowledged. Right? Now, how did a book get acknowledged as scripture? It was done on the basis of how useful it was to the earliest Christian churches. So if Paul wrote to the church in Mafra, we'd read the letter and we'd go, oh boy, this is good stuff. This, this answers the problems that we're grappling with at the moment. Oh, and the, the church in Sale needs to hear this too. We better write a copy for them. right? And Sale goes, oh man, we need to hear this. And so it was on the basis of the usefulness in the earliest Christian communities that the, that the canon was decided. They, they said, this comes from the hand of the apostle and it has the force of the teaching of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. They could recognise that in the works. And so um, as those books were assembled, as those writings were assembled, they were copied and copied and copied and they were distributed and it was because of their usefulness that they were included. So why is there a New Testament at all? Well, the only reason is because Jesus came alive. Uh, so this is this, um, the, the second part of what I would want, if someone would listen long enough to get through to this. The New Testament was written because people were convinced that Jesus was dead and became alive, physically alive, to the point where he could eat fish and bread. Right? He wasn't a ghost, he wasn't just a powerful memory, he was actually alive. Uh, and because of that, the New Testament was written. Now, look, I'll leave you to read these verses yourself, but, but Paul says, if, if he wasn't raised, we'd have been pitied. That's why Paul wrote, um, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was recorded while people were still alive to dispute it. Um, C.S. Lewis says, even though the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, are the first books in our New Testament, don't think of them as the originals. And everything is a construction on that. He said they were only written because people had believed the gospel and the gospel was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. What does he say? That Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, buried according to the scriptures and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The gospels would not have been written if people hadn't believed the gospel. Who wants a biography of a dead failure? If it wasn't for the resurrection, Jesus looked like a crucified crook or a religious fraud. They wrote the story of the Gospels because he'd been raised from the dead. So the, um, the tomb, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he'd be forgotten. Nothing to remind us of him at all. There would be no New Testament. It's clear that in the early days the disciples didn't expect him to be raised from the dead and yet at the end they were convinced he had and that's why they wrote... Um, there are alternative explanations that he wasn't really dead. Well, you can disprove that quite clearly because Roman soldiers knew what a dead body looked like. They were experts in killing. And uh, in Mark's Gospel we read that the centurion said, this is the Son of God. And then he went to Pilate and asked for the corpse. Uh, in John we read that... Uh, the Jews wanted the bodies removed from the crosses before the Sabbath, before the high and holy day, and they needed to make sure that they were really dead, so they smashed their legs with a spear. Right? A Roman crucifixion could be prolonged to last for days. Did you know that? Death was not instant. It took a long time. They could fine-tune the death so it would last for days because that way you gave time for the birds to come and start eating at the people before they were even dead. 
But the Jews didn't want the dead bodies on the cross, so they said, get them down. So the Romans broke the legs of the other two thieves because that way they couldn't force themselves up to get air into the lungs. But when they got to Jesus, he was dead. And a Roman soldier knew what a dead body looked like. Um, Jesus had been whipped to within an inch of his life. He could not have convinced his disciples he'd been raised if he'd been whipped and then crucified. It's just... Hans Holbein made this extraordinary painting where he actually studied the body of a dead corpse, uh, a dead a body that had been dead for four days. He wanted to really ram home the idea of just how dead Jesus really was before he was raised. Uh, people say, oh, they went to the wrong tomb, um, but everybody knew where the tomb was. Women, Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, um, Peter and John. The Romans could have rounded up anybody as witnesses and, and prevailed upon them to say where the tomb was. Um, the body was stolen. Who'd do that? Why would you steal the body of a failure? Who were you trying to kid? Um, but the authorities could have produced the body if it was still there. Uh, it was guarded. It was a matter of great shame. The Roman soldiers, the penalty for failing in your duty was death. The Roman soldiers who were on guard when Jesus' tomb was sealed should have been punished with death for failing in their duty. But in fact, they were bribed to keep the story a secret. So the Jews said, well, you know, here's some money, we'll make sure that the word doesn't get out. Um, why would you invent a story of this kind? And if you did, you wouldn't have had women as your first witnesses because women's testimony was barely accepted in court in those days. Uh, would you make up a story about a man who died a criminal's death. Um, why would so many people die for their faith in, and, and not admit that it was all made up? Peter, we believe from Christian history, was crucified upside down, just in case anybody made the mistake of thinking his crucifixion was in any way comparable to Jesus. It was a terrible way to die. He could have just said, no, we made it up, but he didn't. Um other things, the Sabbath becoming the Lord's Day. These were all Jews. The seventh day of the week was holy to them, but then they started to meet on the first day. Um, the spectacular growth of Christian communities throughout the Roman Empire and the mingling of Jews and Gentiles, like I spoke about in church last Sunday. But here's another thing. I, I've visited some famous graves in my time. Uh, I'm not morbid, it's just interesting, right? I visited C.S. Lewis's grave in Oxford. You can find it even today. Right. Um, I visited Ben Hall's grave in the Forbes Cemetery in New South Wales, uh, the Bushranger. I used to teach about him in Australian history. You know, I wanted to go to see Ben Hall's grave. I've done it. Uh, I went to Rosine, Kentucky, when I was travelling through the United States with my son, and we visited the grave of the great Bill Monroe, the founder of bluegrass music. But I did not pay veneration. I didn't leave a guitar pick on the thing. You know, I just looked at it, right, and read the inscription. It's interesting, right? If you were to go to uh, Kandy in Sri Lanka, you could visit the Temple of the Tooth, where it's said that... Uh, you've been there? Yep. There you go. Was it good? Yeah. yeah. There's a tooth of Buddha in the temple. Wow. <laughs> if you go to Medina in Saudi Arabia, you can visit the, the, uh, the tomb of the Prophet Muhammad. And an obedient Muslim would try to do that at least once in their life. Right, so we know where Muhammad ended up and, uh, and people believe we've got a relic from Buddha. Right? 
If you go to Jerusalem, they'll take you to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But it's believed to have been built by Constantine's mother or wife, I can't remember, several hundred years after Jesus was raised from the dead and she built, she, she paid for this church to be built on where tradition said Jesus' grave was. But some of the tour guides will take you to the garden tomb and say, no, she was wrong, it's here. The fact is no one knows, really. Now isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that the founder of a religious faith, which has all to do with his death, no one actually knew where he was buried. Why is that? Because they weren't interested, because he wasn't there. If we were talking about a made-up religion, they would have venerated that shrine, and they didn't, because they weren't interested. It was just a hole in the ground where he used to be. If there was a grave with Jesus' bones in it, well, there'd be no New Testament from the Apostle Paul. There'd be no calendar. There'd be... So today wouldn't be the 16th of May of 2021. There'd be no Mafra Community Church, if we were honest. We'd just have to meet at the Bowls Club, wouldn't we? Because <laughs> we all like each other. <laughs> but we'd have to find a different reason for meeting, because it wouldn't be about Jesus, would it? If it wasn't for the resurrection. C.S. Lewis, who I quote prolifically because he always has something good to say, he says this, Christianity is a statement which, if true, which if false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. Think about that. It's either true or it's crackers. Garbage. Think about this as we finish. Imagine a world without Christianity. Try. No golden rule. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. Now you'll hear people say, oh no, that turns up in all the great faiths. No, it doesn't. It turns up in the negative. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Now you can fulfil that and do nothing. But Jesus expresses it in the positive. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. So take your neighbour's bins out when he's sick if you'd like him to do it for you. But if he's sick and you see the bin, don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. You go, well, it's just a bin. You can fulfil the negative version of the law without doing anything. Imagine a world without the golden rule. People think we just sort of developed it. Well, it's just natural. It's just, you know, Richard Dawkins would say that's evolutionary morality. We've worked out this is how world, the world... Well, lots of other people haven't worked it out. Jesus had to teach it. Imagine a world without art and architecture and music and universities and hospitals and science. The way we do science now is the product of Christian thinking. It says the universe has a purpose, it had a beginning and it's headed somewhere. If you think the universe is a constant cycle, if you don't think the universe runs according to laws that you can predict, you will never do science. You can't. The calendar... The separation of church and state. All of these things are Christian concepts. Universities were the product of the church. Hospitals were the product of the church. Imagine a world without those things. Remember when Notre Dame burned down in France a couple of years ago? And there was all these grieving people. I can remember thinking at the time, why would you grieve? Because France is one of the most secular 
atheistic nations on, on the planet. Why would you grieve over a building that should never have been built? It was a building that was built for a lie if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Why would you get upset about it? These are the sorts of things that I would want to gently prod an unbeliever with if I had an opportunity. Why are you worried about that? It's just a building built for a lie. Pretty building. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So our faith rests on solid history, which has been written down carefully and transmitted with the utmost accuracy. And so when we read and say with Billy Graham, the Bible says we're on solid ground. All right? There you go. Got any questions? That wasn't very interactive, was it? It was very... (laughs) (laughs) Or any thoughts? Yeah, you mentioned, um, but I'll use it anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned how when they um, uh, chose the books of Paul's letters, the ones that were most useful to the church, that, that the church had found useful. Yep. So they must have had access to other letters that Paul had written um, that we've lost. Yep. No um, recollection of any other well, external canon well, of scripture. Yeah, the, Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians because if you read 1 Corinthians he talks about his former letter and then if you read 2 Corinthians it's clear that he's written to them between first, what we would now call 1st and 2nd right um, now for whatever reason those books weren't kept or those letters weren't kept uh, so perhaps they addressed an issue which was so particularly 1st Corinthians or to, for the Corinthians that it wasn't copied and distributed or perhaps they regarded it as being somewhat deficient in inspiration, I don't know but we we do know that he wrote other things but all those 80 gospels that Dan Brown talks about the others come from over 100 years after, they weren't written by eyewitnesses so if you've read the Da Vinci Code he makes a big deal of the gospel of Judas, now there is such a thing as the gospel of Judas and they made it up Uh, and they gave it a biblical name which was a common technique that was used back in those days to give something authenticity Um, but if you read the gospel of Judas you're reading a book that doesn't have much manuscript tradition in fact there's I think only about one copy of it so you can't compare the gospel of Judas with anything else and it was written well into the second century a long time after the eyewitnesses had died but when you read the gospel of judas which is the one that tells us that jesus kissed mary magdalene i've actually seen a reproduction of it what you've got is this fragment of text with this great big tear where we've lost a bit of it and it just says jesus kissed and then you've got mary magdalene so you have to make up the what's in the gap and that's not exactly solid material right and anybody who knows about this stuff has to admit that so to base a theory on a tiny damaged fragment of a very late text that's got no textual support, well, good on you. Yeah. So was Build there... the hospital on that. Yeah, right. Thanks. Uh, was there 80 other Gospels, even though they're later? Was, is there 80? Well, there's none that come with that level of support and the, the competing Gospels that Dan Brown's talking about are all from the second century. They weren't first century documents. Uh, so it's widely believed now. So 
Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive, didn't he? Didn't he? Mm-hmm. Where do we read does that? Which gospel is that in? Does Paul say that, doesn't he? It's in the book of Acts. Okay. Right? But it's quoted in the book of Acts as though it's a genuine statement of the Lord Jesus. And so there, there were probably written records of the life of Jesus circulating that may have been used to write books like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but they, they haven't sort of come down to us in the form that they had. But they, they were probably around. But... They just haven't survived. Uh, one more thing. Uh, you know when Paul mentions, I can't actually, I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it, when he says that uh, this is from the Lord, but then this yeah. is my opinion. Yeah. Do you want to say something about that? That's in First Corinthians. And so his, his opinion is still the result of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So it seems that what's happening there is Paul saying, on this, we've got a definitive teaching from the Lord Jesus, but on this, I'm going to tell you what the Holy Spirit's instructed me. So he's writing, he's saying that with apostolic authority, not with the, not because Jesus said it. But as some, you see, Paul, 2 Corinthians is the letter where Paul defends his apostolicity more than any other. He does it a bit in Galatians, but, but certainly in 2 Corinthians, he, one of the one of the reasons he wrote Second Corinthians was because people had come to Corinth after he'd planted the gospel there and said Paul's not a proper apostle, and and it's clear from what he writes there that the reason that they've said that is because he suffered so much, and so it looks if you read between the lines you conclude these super apostles as Paul calls them have said about him. Well, God wouldn't let one of his servants suffer like Paul has and says, on the contrary, I'm suffering because I'm an apostle. And so he he demonstrates his apostolic credentials through his suffering and how God's kept him. And uh, But he also says there, as his final argument, that he received what he, he preaches from Jesus himself. He wasn't taught it by anyone. He had a direct revelation. So he says, I know a man who was taken into the third heavens and he was shown things that he, that he wasn't allowed to speak about. So 2 Corinthians 12. And so it seems that Paul's claim was, and others said, well, he's writing scripture, um, his claim was that he received direct instruction from Jesus. And so that's the basis on which he writes to them. I might, This might be my thought, but it's, it, it's coming with the weight of Holy Spirit inspiration. So is that... Yeah... That's the difference. Yeah. Gee, my answers are long. Thank <laughs> 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 you. Make it loud because I've got the hearing aids. So, yeah. You're right, Steve? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Pastor. Oh. At the outset, you were talking about change and progress. And yep. uh, to me, change uh, is different than progress. Yep. And some. Changes. Um, I'm just thinking. I can remember having a twenty, a thirty-two gauge needle yeah. of insulin, and it came back to mm. twenty-five gauge or twenty-three, yeah. and the different sizes. That's a change. Some may call it progress, but the yeah. bit, the, the, there are instances where the size of the needle can be um, to get. Insulin through a, a small syringe, it's, it's easier to get through a big yeah, syringe. Yeah. Progress um, is not always good, 
but sometimes progress is good. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and the progress, I'm just, again, talking about the old blood testing compared to yeah. what a CGM is. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Yeah. So um, there's nothing wrong with progress. And I'm saying this. Yeah. I'm, this is yeah, yeah. My, my view. No, there's nothing wrong with progress, but not, not all progress. Uh, well, you and I agree then. Yeah. Good. I hope I didn't say anything that suggested otherwise. No, I'm, I'm yeah. just qualifying. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew no, that's good. Because you're wiser than I am. But, um, no, not necessarily. But uh, um, what else was I going to say? The um, Just the in- instance regarding um, God's word. Yeah. I believe it's God's word. Yeah. No, because no, um, you, you know, we've been taught here over the... Yeah. 30 years, you know, you, you can't take snippets and agree in part and not agree yeah. in other parts. But my my more um, my troublesome areas are not so much what is God's word, but why did God do it that way? And I can't question God, but I suppose I, and I've spoken to, uh, about this at home, you know, I can't. I've been asked, "Are you questioning God?" I said, "Well, I'm not, but why did He do it? You know, uh, that way. You know, yeah. why? Why did He give the level of autonomy to mankind to get so to go so wrong? What in the? He, you're talking about that six point nine mm. with Dawkins. Or, uh, mm. uh, 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 why didn't He just give mankind? You can go between one and seven, but look, you can only go. You can only sin as bad as point six, mm. and you won't. You yeah. won't go to that, that extra bit. That's just one area. And I'm yeah. sure I'm going to learn from you down the track. Uh, during I may your, not have the answers. During your twenty years here, uh, well, I know that. I've been told <laughs> that by many. I've <laughs> been talking about me, me as well. So <laughs> yeah. that's just something yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the mix. Yeah. The, the, the final point is, I'd love you to do a PhD in what you've just put forward. Thanks. Hang on, what was the last bit? I'd love you to do a PhD in what you just said. Uh, and um, there's probably others who have. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, Thanks. There's doctors and there's, there's specialists and there's GPs. I'm just a GP. So, uh, uh, so yeah. a, a grand performer. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Look, can I just take take on a couple of things? So I hope I didn't say anything that would suggest that progress is is not sometimes good. But what I would ask is, is all progress good? Because here's some other thing. We're better at killing people now than we used to be. Right? Mass murderers had a very difficult time and all they had to use was a knife. Right? You can't have a massacre without a sub-automatic, you know, like a semi-automatic weapon, can you? Right? So we're better at killing people. Is that that's progress, right? But it's not good progress. So what I would ask is, is it good or is it bad? Progress is not inevitably good, and the way that people talk about it. So in in the debate, in the topics that we're going to be talking about in a few weeks, over the next few weeks, very often people think they've ended the argument when they say, "You're old-fashioned. We're progressive." Right? Because that's the word that's used. There's reactionary and there's progressive. Well, I'm just saying, well, just because it's new, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Right? So we live longer now than we ever used to because there's better needles and better doctors and better science and all that sort of stuff. That's true. There's been progress. But we live in a world also which is still captive to the fall and in which 
progress is not inevitably going to be good. And, and so the reason I talk about the Egyptians and the Aboriginals is because they prized something else. They said continuity is more to be prized than innovation. And now there's pluses and minuses for both. But um, just because we're living in our historical moment doesn't think we've captured, doesn't mean we've captured what it truly means to be human. We have progressed in matters. Like, yeah. And, uh, and it's quite a bit out like the verbiage. Yeah. Uh, six out, but, um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. All I want to do is... Yeah, but I, look, I appreciate you bringing it up. So I'm all for progress, you know, like um, if they could make a better head up headache tablet that would get me over my headaches in five minutes, I'd be happy to hear about it, right? But um, the other thing on why did God do it that way, the answer is sometimes we just don't know i mean why didn't god just put a, a chip into everybody's head that said oh, i will worship and adore you for all eternity um that that's look some of the questions you've raised there they, they probably trouble everybody that has ever tried to grapple with being a christian um one of my great heroes has become a man called alec matia um if you know the Bible Speaks Today Bible Commentary Series, he was the editor of the Old Testament part. And, and I've listened to quite a few of his sermons and I really like his style. He loves the Bible. He just, you know, he, if you cut Alec Mateer, he'd bleed scripture. And um, he said in one of his sermons, isn't it wonderful that God's given us a book we can debate? There's something to be said for that because you don't debate the Koran. If you don't understand it, you just accept it. If you debate it, you're in trouble. But the Christian faith, God's given us a book that He wants us to love us with, love Him with our minds, and so we need to think it through. Um, and, and so there's a lot of things that we just have to say. Well, I'm not sure, you know. Uh, I remember Dave telling me years ago about the Trinity. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. And Dave said, in his wisdom, you just got to believe it. You just got to accept it. Yeah. Well, the great Augustine, Augustine was one of those earliest Christian thinkers from about the fourth century, I think, and uh, and he said, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't be saved, but if you try to understand it, you'll go out of your mind, <laughs> right? Um, so if ever I, I have taught about the Trinity, and I love teaching about the Trinity because it's, it's the crown jewel of our theology because our, our deepest need is to be reconciled to the Father. So I don't want to be impolite or anything, but God can't help being who God is. And God is one person in three, one God in three persons. You can debate it, you can argue, but when you meet him, you're like, well, yep, that's how it was. Right? God is God, right? Uh, we only believe in the Trinity because Jesus was raised from the dead and the earliest apostles believed that they'd received the Holy Spirit, right? They couldn't receive the Holy Spirit unless Jesus died, was raised and ascended. Uh, but nobody invented the doctrine of the Trinity. It came about because they had no choice. Because here's a man who can walk on water and heal the blind and raise the dead and who, after three days in the ground, he turns... Well, that's new. Right, and so they, 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 he must be God. And then on the day of Pentecost, they think he's not just up there; he's in here. And so they have to write about it as they as it's come. And so we we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and we get the doctrine of the Trinity. But our deepest problem is that we're estranged from God the Father, and He will solve that by sending His Son. 
And if there was only one God in one person, then he had no other to send. But he sent his son in, the, in, in a human body and his son then took his body back to heaven and he sends his spirit. And the spirit is not the son and the spirit is not the father, but the spirit's what keeps us going. So you can buy big books on the Trinity, but, um, and, and, but yeah, Dave, Dave was right. Um, you may not understand it, but just believe it. And don't worry about three-leaf clovers and ice and water. and Don't worry. All those things let you down. Just believe it. Yeah, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I'll teach you about it one I'd love to do some teaching about it one day because uh, it's beautiful and it's ever so important. Uh, yep, Harry. Very much easier. A lot of things that are difficult to understand. A verse that jumps into my mind is Luke one thirty seven, and a comparable one in Matthew and Mark. It says, "For God, all things are possible." Yeah, and and that helps me accept a lot of things I cannot understand. Yeah. Well, that's that's true. Um, that, that sort of goes back to the question that I sometimes ask people: Is it illogical to to move from a God who can create a world, a universe as complex and vast as this, if he can do all that, do you think he could write a book? That, that doesn't seem a leap of logic to me at all. And could he make sure that it was written down just as he wanted? That seems sensible. Um, and now, through the processes, we, it's still here, and it's still what it says it was. So uh, the other, you know, another proof of the, of the gospel is just what it does to people. It transforms people. It reconciles enemies. Show me where else that happens. You know, so... Um, yeah. How are we going? Is that enough for now? Yeah. I'm happy to stay because I love talking about this stuff. I really do. <laughs> But look, it's just so important. You've got to have a foundation. You just do. You, you've got to have a foundation, and the Bible's a good one. Show me a better one, and you got me. You know, but, um, it works. So, but it works for a reason. That's because it's God's word. Uh, yeah. And it's a firm foundation. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Yeah. So that. Thanks so much for coming. It's, it's great encouragement to me that so many of you would want to come out. So next time, was it two weeks, is it, or is it next Sunday? I'll be back. So, yeah. um, so next next time we're going to talk about the thorny subject of race and and you know racism and all these sorts of things, which is just a big big issue in the world at the moment. That's why there's trouble in Jerusalem at the moment because you've got people who will not agree on the basis of their origins, you know, and. And we've got the Black Lives Matter thing and all the rest of it. Um, and so some of us are wondering what's going on. So we're going to think about race and a Christian response to all that. And uh, so hopefully you'll want to come to that because it's important. Um, it's, you're not that diverse of a bunch down here in Mafra, are we? But, uh, you know, I went to a conference a few years ago uh, with a speaker from Sydney and he said, 
he asked me about the church in Warrigal. He said, have you got many Chinese? I said, no. He said, you got many Africans? I said, no. He said, well, we'd say in Sydney your church isn't doing very well. And I'd say, well, we don't have any Chinese and Africans in Warrigal. You know, <laughs> we do now, right? So it does become an index of, you know, so... If you look at our ancestry, you get a quite a bit of um, diversity. Say. Hang on, make it. Uh, so there is a quite. A, if you look at our ancestry, yeah. you would see a lot of diversity yeah. because there's none of us really that dark. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. Well, uh, what about we pray? Um, somebody like to pray and finish up? I could, but we could get somebody here to do it. I don't want that. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you for the people here. I praise you and I thank you with all my heart and I hope everybody else is the same. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks to Steve for taking me up the time to come down and, and um, teach us. I guess that's what it's called. Uh, I just praise you and I thank you. Lord. Yeah. Amen.